I'd like to keep that passage from Ephesians chapter 2 open in front of you as we come to look at that a bit more closely together this morning. But let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, as we come to your word, we look forward to you speaking to us. To speaking to us and telling us more about you and especially about the salvation you've given us in Christ. Father, we ask that your spirit will open our ears and give us ears to hear that we might understand clearly and praise you for this salvation that we have in Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, our world today is obsessed with makeovers, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, wherever you look, we seem to be confronted with a makeover. We have TV shows like Selling Houses or The Block or Masters of Flip or even Beauty and the Geek. And so whether it's beauty treatments or cosmetic treatments or man-shaped commercials or restoring antiques or house and garden makeovers, we are constantly being bombarded with pictures that compare what some think or someone was before the process began and what they are like now after the event. Well, this morning as we come to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes what many would call the ultimate makeover. And Ephesians makes it very close and personal for it is a contrast that accurately describes you and me. For those of us who are Christians, it reminds us of what we once were without Christ and what we have now become in Jesus Christ. But we have now been reconciled to God, and as we will most more specifically see next week, we've also been sorry, reconciled to one another. And for those of us who say that you don't really know Christ yet, that it becomes uh, something which opens up for us the contrast of what we are, and what we could be, it speaks about the total transformation that Jesus can make to your life. Well, so far in Ephesians chapter 1, we've had Paul's great explosion of praise for God for the way that he has blessed us in Christ, in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing. How God has chosen us and predestined us for adoption as his children and redeemed us, and forgiven us, and has lavished the riches of his grace upon us, and given us the Holy Spirit as a seal and a deposit that guarantees our inheritance. Last week, we had the privilege of discovering how Paul prayed for these Christians in Ephesus, that God would grant them a greater knowledge of him, and of the hope to which he has called them, and of his incredibly great power for us who believe. That same power that God exerted in raising Christ from the dead and placing him in the ultimate place and position of far greater power and authority. And as we come to chapter 2 this morning, it's no accident that Paul writes these words immediately following that prayer. He wants these Ephesian Christians to know this unequal great power for those who believe 
And he reminds them that it is this very same power that raised them from spiritual death and made them alive with Christ. Paul begins chapter 2 by contrasting the fallen human condition with that of the risen Christ, the risen and ascended Christ. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our spiritual nature and following its desires and thoughts. This is the way you were. Paul says, remember how bad it was without Christ? You were dead. You were dead in transgressions and sins. And transgressions here has the idea of overstepping the boundaries or to deviate or to go off in a wrong direction. Transgressions. And then sin. Sin is the idea of missing the mark, of falling short of God's holy and divine standards. Paul says you were dead. Not sick, not in a coma, but dead. And common sense would tell you that that's not good. Spiritually, we had dropped off the perch. We were deceased, lifeless, powerless, non-compassmentous, totally tactless, you might say. We were dead to the things of God, dead to the gospel, unable to respond to the word of life. We were totally without hope. And one of the distinguishing things about dead people is they cannot help themselves. We know that death is permanent and that it would take an absolute miracle for someone to come back from the dead, yeah? And the cause of this death? Sin. Sin. Verse 1. You were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Paul says you all lived sinful, worthless lives, doing whatever the devil or your hormones or your warped minds told you to do. Paul says you're enslaved to the world, you're enslaved to the devil and you're enslaved to yourself. And so you have aroused God's wrath and judgment. The words in which you used to live implies that even though people are spiritually dead, they are still physically alive in which you used to live. John Eady, a Scottish scholar, says this. He says, we are like spiritual zombies, the walking dead who don't know that they are dead. Paul goes on to speak about the enslaving nature of sin. Verse 2, when you followed the ways of. And that word followed is an understatement. This isn't talking about us, you know, willingly and uh, gladly going along with something. This is more like being led and dragged along like prisoners. And by three evil forces, Paul says, we were used, or these three forces that, 
we used to refer to as the world, the flesh, and the devil. Firstly, there's the world, verse 2, when you follow the ways of this world. In other words, the influence of those around us, our parents, our friends, the media, people we work with, people we mix with, the society that we live within. You see, whether we like it or not, we live in a world that is basically anti-God. John MacArthur says that the basic human problem is not being out of harmony with their heritage or their environment, but being out of harmony with their creator. Recent figures say that the global pornography market is worth over $100 billion and that the average American child by the age of 18 has apparently seen 40,000 plus TV murders and over 2 million acts of violence. And then on top of that, there's all this stuff about sexual freedom these days, same-sex marriage, gender fluidity and infidelity. And they're all being promoted as being acceptable and natural human behaviour. We were dead because we followed the world in its course of sin and rebellion against God. That's why Paul warns us in Romans chapter 12 as Christians to not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Secondly, there's the devil. There's the devil. I mean, you look at the end of uh, uh, verse 2, the second half of that, Paul refers to him as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit of who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The devil, or Satan, if you like, is there behind the scenes tempting people to be disobedient. And whether knowingly or unknowingly, we were subject to Satan's influence. Deffenbauer says, people blinded and deceived by Satan think they are really living it up when in reality they are dead. And then thirdly, there's the flesh. Yeah, verse 3. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. We are sinners because we follow the dictates of our hormones, of the sinful passions of our body and the warped thoughts of our minds. We were enslaved to sin. That is how Paul uses some pretty strong words in this passage, doesn't he? Gratifying the cravings. That's like a drug addict chasing after heroin. Or maybe even the strong cravings that can often come with pregnancy. Yeah? And this all stems from our sinful nature. Each and every one of us are born with inherent sin. Sin is part of our human makeup, a built in tendency, if you like, to do what is wrong, a built in uh, the tendency to ignore God and His Word. It's what we call original sin. In Psalm 51, King David writes, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And this is very evident in our 
daily lives. It's very evident, especially in young children, isn't it? I mean, ever notice how you don't have to teach children to be naughty? <laughs> Instead, you've got to teach them how to be nice and good, don't you? Now, if some of you might still believe that people are basically good and there's no such thing as original sin, then try leaving your iPhone or your wallet on the front seat of your car with a window down in the middle of Northbridge for a few hours. If people are basically good, it's going to be there when you get back, isn't it? People are dead in sin because they are born that way. Verse 3, we were by nature objects of wrath. Hey, just when you thought things couldn't get any worse, you come to the end of verse 3, don't we? The very worst thing about our situation is that by nature, that is, by just being who we are, by just being a part of the sinful human race, we are objects of God's wrath, God's anger at sin. You see, without Christ, we were enemies of God. We were destined for God's judgment against sin. Now, that's the before picture that Paul paints. And it's summed up in those very well-written uh, words for us that come in verse 1, you were dead, yeah? not just sick, not off colour, but a spiritual fatality. And you've got to be thinking, what a horrible state to be in. How could we possibly get out of this mess? And then you come to verse 4. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And that word, but, at the beginning of verse 4 is a very important word in this passage, isn't it? For it tells us that things have totally turned around, completely turned around for those who are now in Christ Jesus. Notice where the solution comes from? It comes from God. And so there is hope. The condition that mankind is in because of sin does not have to be terminal. God can take the dead you and make you alive with Christ. Isn't that great news? Isn't that the most exciting thing that you've ever heard? And Paul says that there are four motivating factors in all of this. It's because of God's great love for us. It's because God is rich in mercy. It's because of the incomparable riches of God's grace. And it's because of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God's love. God's love is not a response. It's a cause. God's love for us is vastly different from our love for him. We're actually told that we love God because he first loved us. And that's a response, isn't it? But not with God. Verse 4 says, because of his great love for us. 
not because of any of our great potential, not because of any glimpse of hope. It's because of God's character. Yeah? God's great love for us. God loved us even while we were his enemies, even while we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, and that word rich, plusius, it's, it's overabounding in mercy. It's mercy without measure, without any limit. It's like this unrelenting grace in some ways. It keeps on abounding. And mercy, of course, is the idea of showing compassion or um, a leniency to those who don't deserve it. If God gave us what we deserve because of our spiritual death and uh, sinful state, then we'd be in real trouble, wouldn't we? But God, in his abounding mercy, driven by the great love that he has for us, holds back on what we deserve and instead lavishes upon us his mercy and his grace that we don't deserve. We have been shown the incomparable riches of God's grace. It is by grace you have been saved. You see that in verse 5 and then it's there again in verse 7 and 8. We are saved by God's grace. Our salvation comes as a result of God's unmerited and undeserved favour. There is nothing within ourselves that would cause God to act the way he did. God has chosen to save us because of his great love for us and because he is rich in mercy. All of which is, in verse 7, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. From the moment of our salvation onwards, we never stop receiving the grace and kindness of God through which God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What that means for us is that you used to have both feet in the grave, but now God has made you alive with Christ and he's raised you up with Christ and seated you with Christ himself in the heavenly realms. How good is that? Now that's what people would call the ultimate makeover. I mean, what a transformation. God made us alive with Christ. And what is the one thing that a dead person needs more than anything else? Life. Life. Well, we were a spiritual corpse, unconscious of God, inactive in God's service, decaying morally. But now God has completely transformed us by giving us life. He has worked an absolute miracle in our very lives. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead has also freed us from our enslavement to sin and death. We are now alive with Christ. Someone wrote that God has done for us spiritually what he did for his son Jesus physically. God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. 
here is not only our inclusion in Christ's resurrection, but also our inclusion is into his ascension into heaven as well. Having been raised from the dead, Jesus was taken up into heaven where he now sits in a place of absolute power and authority. And there is this sense in which us being taken up into heaven with Christ, our ascension means that we have been given a new environment. We are no longer of this world. We are now a new creation. We are now citizens of heaven because of our union with Jesus Christ. We are now seated with him in the heavenly realms in a position that is, so to speak, next to God where we will somehow one day, as Paul says in uh, 2 Timothy 2, we will reign with Christ. It's a position that speaks of victory, of authority, of security, of privilege and of great rejoicing. And God has raised us and seated us with Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the sorry, the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is also a place of continuing intimacy and revelation. Have you noticed how all the verbs here are in the past tense? Yeah, They're all in the past tense. We have been made alive with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. We have been seated with him in the heavenly realms. In other words, this is where we are now at. But hang on a minute. You might say, how can that possibly be? I mean, aren't we sitting here in a pew with Leaderville right here and now? Or are we sitting in heaven? I don't know if you remember a singer named Tony Bennett. Well, he was well known for a song that he sang. It was titled, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. Well, what did he mean by that? If he was living in New York, I mean, how could his heart be in San Francisco? Well, what was meant was that San Francisco had a firm hold on his affection. Yeah? And I think it's the same idea here, that even though we may still be living in this world, our hearts, our affection is focused on heaven. Someone said, when we became a Christian, God made you homesick for heaven. Well, this is the after picture, yeah? If we have become in Christ a new creation. We had the before picture, you were dead, but now you've been made a life with Christ. And boy, what a difference. What a difference. How does it all happen? Well, lastly, let's just have a quick look at verses 7 through to 10. You see, there, firstly, tells us how God saves us. It is by grace that you have been saved. Secondly, we're told about the channel through which that grace comes to us, which is by faith. And then lastly, it tells us of how God does not save us. It is not of works, so that no one can boast. You see, our salvation is all of grace, isn't it? Verse 8, it's by grace you have been saved. Our salvation has nothing to do with our own resources or our own abilities. Our salvation is wholly 
and solely the result of God's grace. Only God has the power to give life to those who are dead. We've seen that right from Genesis chapter 2, haven't we? When God formed a man out of the dust of the earth and he breathed into his nostrils, what? The breath of life. And he became a, a living being. Only God has the power to give life to those who are dead. And we see it here too in this spiritual death that we are involved in because of our transgressions and sin. It is God who has that power to bring us to life again. God has graciously satisfied his punishment for our sin by sending his son Jesus to die in our place, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In Christ, God has conquered sin and death once and for all and he graciously now offers us life, eternal life, and to all who believe in his son. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And how does such a great and free salvation become mine personally? Paul says it's through faith. Through faith. And according to Hebrews 11, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. But notice how this faith is not something that originates from within ourselves, is it? It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, there's been a lot of scholarly debate about what actually is the gift of God here. Is it grace or is it faith or is it somehow the whole concept of salvation that is being offered to us as the gift of God? I want to say, what difference does it make? What difference does that make? They are all tied up together, aren't they? Our salvation, which comes by grace and through faith, is a free and divine gift from God. It's on the house, if you like. God's free gift. The thing that makes the difference in our lives is God's mercy and God's love and God's grace. You see, it's all of God. It's not from ourselves. And let's face it, Paul has already told us at the beginning of the chapter that we were dead, unable to respond to anything. This is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Nothing that you and I can ever do, however great or small, can save us and get us to heaven. If we think that that is true, then we're trusting in ourselves and our own abilities rather than trusting in Christ. When it comes to our salvation, human effort has nothing to do with it. And it is deeply humbling, isn't it, to realise that our salvation is all from God. I reckon that's why the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6, May I never boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's workmanship. What an image, yeah? God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. God has crafted us and reshaped us. 
God has given us a better way to live. And in response, we begin to do what God wants us to do. Notice we are not saved by good works, but for good works. God sets us free to serve him and his people in this world. So that the challenge for us is not to impress God with good deeds, but to live out what God has called us to do. The good news of the gospel is that we don't have to remain dead in our transgressions and sin. God has provided us with the opportunity of new life in Christ. If you are a Christian, then Paul's words here should be a reminder of what you once were and what you now are in Christ. And that should produce humility and thanksgiving. As well as we will see in uh, chapters 4, 5 and 6, it should also produce holy living. However, if you haven't yet come to that point of making a commitment to Christ, then today might be a great time to accept the gracious gift of God and have your life transformed through faith in Christ. For you too can experience the incomparable riches of God's grace that he has expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we want to thank you for these tremendous words you've given to Paul to write down so that we too can know of them. Father, we thank you that your love for us was so great that, yes, you sent your son, Jesus, into this world to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, to release us from that bondage we had to transgressions and sin but also that your love was so great for us that you moved to make us alive again in Christ and to include us as part of your family and to be indeed with him in the heavenly realms Father as we live on earth now we pray that you'll help us in the way we live to be obedient. Father, to indeed be able to do those things that you have prepared for us to do. We pray that our lives might be different to others in such a way that it will attract their attention and they will want to know the reason why we seem to be different. And then we'll be able to share it's because of our love for you, but that is only a response to that great love that you have for us. Father, may your spirit strengthen us and guide us and, and also comfort us in the difficult times of this life as we look forward to the future hope that we have in Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.